I grow up, I want to be an engineer. When I grow up, I want to be an author. When I grow up, I want to be a fine art thief. When I grow up, when I grow up, I want to be a rock star. When I grow up, I want to be a baseball player. I want to be a baseball player. I guess I know how to throw. When I grow up, I want to be a baseball player. 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 I want to be a baseball Um, let's get started. I am Hannah Binder, the host of My Dilettante Life, and I'm talking today with Kirsten Gardner. Um, so if you want to just start out by telling us a little bit about yourself. So my name is Kirsten Gardner. I currently live in Seattle, Washington, but I was born in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, and I've worked in the travel and tourism industry for about 15 years. And I've had really great luck to follow an arc that has kind of led me to all of these different aspects of, or different layers of the travel industry. Um, that's everything from the experience, you know, facing a client, being a guide, to working on the back end with uh, with hospitality products and hotels and seeing what goes on behind the scenes. Um, my career started in Pittsburgh, where I worked at a, a luxury travel. Uh, agency called Frontiers Elegant Journeys. That was part of the Virtuoso Consortia, which is a grouping of the, you know, the the highest, most luxurious like hotels, tour operators, travel agencies in the world. Um, I then moved on to Seattle and worked for an adventure tour operator um, specializing in Latin America. Uh, so I was putting together both trips selling them to clients, and then sometimes leading them uh, to different destinations in Latin America. And that focus was more on kind of soft adventure, uh, really immersive experiences, not top of the line luxury, um, but working with uh, smaller operators in each destination that were very specialized in like trekking or rafting or climbing. And that was cool. I, I loved doing that. Um, did that for a number of years, got really into uh, naturalist guiding and, and kind of loved being a tour leader. Uh, so I, uh, I worked with, uh, I left Wildland and, and worked with a company called Evergreen Escapes. Uh, I developed my naturalist guiding skills while, um, while working in their uh, planning, their, growing their international department. Uh, and planning trips around the world for clients. And uh, eventually I, I found my way to the hospitality side of things. Um, the past four years I've spent with Clark Cotola Representation uh, working uh, to help small sustainable luxury properties in Central and South America um, work with more travel agents. So just to quickly explain what representation is, um, properties around the world it is incredibly expensive for them to send one of their employees to North America where their clientele market is and try to meet with people and try to form those connections. You know, they don't have access to that information. No one has time for it. So a representation company fulfills that role. Um, we have the contacts with the top producers in North America. And so I, I became a representative and, and worked on the hospitality side of things for four years. Um, Recently, I left Clark Cotola Representation uh, to start Outlier Journeys. Uh, it's a two-person boutique travel design firm um, specializing in destinations around the world that my and my co-founder know very well. Uh, and our intersection is, uh, our specialty is really planning private travel sort of at the intersection of responsible, sustainable tourism, um, high-end, and then soft, immersive adventure. 
That sounds amazing. Um, one question, what is to date the coolest trip that you have ever done? The coolest trip I have ever planned to date is for these, those rock star clients, Elise and Sharon. Um, they did this super deep dive into Brazil and they went to, um, Mato Grosso Norte and Mato Grosso Sul. And so they did all of the Pantanal. They went to these remote lodges where you can see jaguars. Um, it's one of the best places in the world to see jaguars and they wanted to photograph them and they came back with amazing photography. Um, but they, they spent like, I want to say, gosh, like 10 or 11 days just in the Pantanal. They went to Cristilano Jungle Lodge. What is the Pantanal? The Pantanal is this like wetland environment in Brazil where you have seasonal flooding and it has incredible biodiversity. Um, but because and some of the same species like carry over from the Amazon, but because you're in more of a, like a grassland or a flooded grassland, you have greater visibility to a lot of animals. The jungle is incredibly diverse where the rainforest is, but when most of your experience in the rainforest to see wildlife is you're in trees and that wildlife is really good at hiding from you. Like that's why it exists. So I think people, they don't always have that like, oh my gosh, moment that they, they saw something really visibly and beautifully like you do on, you know, safari in Africa. Um, it's a little more hidden. So the Pantanal in Brazil is a, is a seasonal like wetland grassland area that has incredible biodiversity. Um, and an area in the north is really well known for jaguars. Um, in the south, you have areas where the, the hyacinth macaw, um, this like beautiful blue macaw with like the yellow beak. It's, it's a really large animal. They have breeding and, and rehabilitate or conservation programs for that bird. Um, so they spent like 12 days just between different regions of the Pantanal photographing wildlife. They went up into the Amazon for another week. And then they did the, um, the Atlantic rainforest of Brazil. Uh, they stayed at the outside of the colonial town of Parachi. They did all of this amazing kayaking and uh, between like different lagoons and just these beautiful inland waterways. Um, they saw tamarins. They, they did like the, it was like my dream wildlife trip to Brazil and they went for all of it and they always travel for like four weeks. So that's a lot of time for especially Americans to take off. But if someone gives you that, like that's such a gift as a travel planner, you can just be like, Oh my God, this is the coolest trip you could possibly do. Um, but that was, that was an incredibly special. They supported a lot of different like conservation and scientific research projects um, through their travels on that trip. And they wanted amazing photography and they, they got that in spades. So was really incredible to hear. I was really excited to interview you because I just like, so to be totally honest, like my impression of your professional history is that you do all the amazing, cool, adventurous things that the rest of us wish that we could do <laughs> or like <laughs> oh, hold on. I'm, courageous I'm enough now. to do. <laughs> but you know, like, um, it's so interesting to hear you kind of break down your professional like path so far, because like the image that I have in my mind is that you have been like, um, 
you know, a fly fishing tour guide in Slovenia among these like <laughs> rushing glacial blue waters and, you know, doing like wine tasting adventures in, you know, outside of Seattle and all of these things that are very like tactile and adventurous. And I know you've done all those things. Mm-hmm. Um but of course, like in my, you know, fantasy mind, it doesn't include all of the like very necessary and very um sort of well-developed skills and expertise that you bring. It's not just that you are an adventurous person who likes to have fun and go out and experience new things. You also bring such a a sense of um, like service to people, it sounds like to me, like you really care about making the experience valuable and um, personalized for the folks that you work with. And then you also just have like exhaustive knowledge of, of the things that you offer. And I think that's really wonderful. So, um, super interesting, excited to dive in a little bit deeper. Um, tell me, you mentioned that you kind of got your start with this brick and mortar travel agency. Remember when those were a thing? Um, they but, still are yes, to some degree. Yeah. Um, so before you started working for them, I mean, was it something that you had dreamed about when you were younger going into kind of travel as an industry or what led you to that? Uh, no, I did not dream about, a, well, let me take that back. So I, again, I didn't grow up traveling. I didn't grow up in a family or with neighbors that took vacations to international destinations. You know, a really, I, I thought my neighbors who drove all the way to Yellowstone and back in a couple of weeks one summer from Pittsburgh was like, you know, that's the exotic trip that I was dreaming of. Um, I, but I did have a mother who was a biology teacher and she had served in the Peace Corps. She was in Lesotho for uh, two years and then uh, a little bit beyond that. And then she spent some time after the Peace Corps traveling up the eastern coast of Africa by herself as a woman in the 70s. So I think hearing those stories and getting these Christmas cards from uh, former former students and seeing these letters that were marked with like stamps from, you know, Swaziland, Lesotho, like, you know, Aramail all over them. They just, they looked so exotic and foreign. So I had that exposure and that idea of the adventure um, without, you know, and of course we got National Geographic. That was my grandparents' gift to us every year was a subscription. And I poured through those magazines. So I had, I think I had kind of a romantic idea of global adventure from a young age, but it wasn't necessarily um, calcified into a, you know, a career objective. When I was little, I was obsessed with James Harriet and Jane Goodall. And I wanted, I loved animals. And I was pretty sure I either wanted to be a jockey or uh, a veterinarian or, uh, you know, study monkeys, be some sort of like wildlife field biologist. Um, and that, that was really my obsession for a long time on, on career day in kindergarten. I distinctly remember bringing all of my stuffed animals in and like saying I was a zookeeper. Uh, so I, and I I carried that with me for a while in college, I actually became an anthropology major, um, partially because I still had that sort of Jane Goodall, maybe mixed with Andy, Indiana Jones, archaeologist idea in the back of my mind. Um, but then, you know, I was also like very susceptible to the the social 
um, side of college and realized that I didn't want to do all the math and science necessary <laughs> to, uh, to actually uh, further that along. So I, I got a degree in cultural anthropology, but I actually think that helps me to this day because I do study people and human behavior uh, quite a bit in every interaction that I have with clients and with the, the people I partner with around the world. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I was just thinking like, it's not like you're exactly David Attenborough, like telling your, you know, narrating what's going on around you for the folks that you might be working with, but it is definitely, I can see the application of, of anthropology and kind of that interest in human nature coming in handy with the type of work that you do. You're listening to My Dilettante Life. I'm your host, Hannah Binder, and today I'm talking with Kirsten Gardner about her career in high-end travel. So um, when, do you recall sort of when the first moment was that you thought about doing this as a longer-term career? I do. Uh, It was, so it was a combination of things. First, uh, I had mentioned earlier, I went on semester at sea, which thank you, dad. He was the one that really pushed me and encouraged me to take advantage of that for my final semester uh, as an undergraduate at the University of Pittsburgh. They were the sponsor university for that program at the time. So it was um, it was either, I, I kind of had this vague notion that I wanted to do study abroad. I didn't know if I wanted to go to like somewhere in Italy for the whole time or or semester at sea. But I remember freshman orientation, my dad grabbed that brochure and he's like, you should do this. This is really cool. I was like, okay, dad, you know, I don't want to leave my boyfriend for that long or (laughs) whatever, um, at the time, but it, uh, it was a complete left turn in my life, that whole experience. Um, we, I was the fall of five semester. We left from Nassau in the Bahamas and we circumnavigated the world, um, coming back to San Diego. Uh, I had never been out of the U S beyond Canada and one trip to um, St. Martin with a, a, a boyfriend's family in high school. Our first port of call was uh, Caracas in Venezuela. And then we went to Brazil, um, South Africa, Mauritius, because we couldn't go up to um, Tanzania because the piracy was happening. And on that, that coast of Africa at the time, targeting cruise ships, which was like really exciting and wild to think that we were this like, you know, little dot of 800 people floating around the sea and we could be targeted. Um, Then we went to India, Myanmar at the time, we were the first student group from the US uh, with I think US students on it allowed back into Myanmar since the embargo. Uh, Vietnam, Hong Kong, flew to mainland China, Japan, and then went home. And throughout that experience, two things happened. One, I think I, I do have some sort of innate desire to plan and organize. And I became the the de facto planner for my, my friends' excursions on the boat. Uh, I would pull out the lonely planets in the library and leaf through them and figure out the train schedules. And it's funny to think back of it now. I think we had like, you had internet minutes that you had to pre-buy and it was really slow and there, there weren't many of them available. So we were doing most of our research from lonely planet and then maybe frantically like logging in and like, booking a couple hostels online. I think we could do that at the time. Um, but it was fun and adventurous. And I really, I really enjoyed like the logistics and kind of seeing it all through. Um, and there was, uh, I don't remember his role. It was this really cool guy who I think was like, he wasn't 
I'm not, he was sort of like the, the help person that was like friendly with the students and helped, helped you kind of make sure you were getting off the boat and getting on the boat on time and, and maybe helping you with some of your plans. But he had a hired role with Semester at Sea, which was to kind of be this like almost travel agent for students. Uh, and I thought that was really cool. So when I got, got out of Semester at Sea, I was pretty convinced that I needed to figure out a way to make um, international travel part of my life full time. Um, I it, this was again 2005. We weren't quite in a recession yet, but the the job prospects for someone with a you know an undergraduate degree in cultural anthropology were not huge. Um, so I was working as a therapeutic home assistant and behavior. I had no special training, but I think it's just a job with really high turnover where I was I was basically a home aide. Um, and doing that, and then saw an ad in the Pittsburgh Post-Gazette for uh, CCAC, which is a community college of Allegheny County. They had a travel agent training program. <laughs> so I was like, cool, I'll try that. Uh, so I was going to night school, and a, a professor I had there, I was taking Sabre classes, which is this, um, it's a, it's, I'm going to butcher this. Uh, every travel agent who listens to this will laugh at me, but it's like a, a program for booking hotels on this global distribution network and airlines and, uh, and ticketing. And it, it's sort of this like shorthand code that you have to learn how to, how to look things up. And he was like, you shouldn't be doing this. He's like, you don't want to go work at AAA. And I, I really liked him. And, and we were, this professor and I were just chatting after class and he's like, there is a company outside of Pittsburgh called Frontiers. They've been around for, I think, 40 years at the time. And they do the type of travel that you should try to get into. He's like, look them up. And I did. I sent them an application and I was hired as an assistant to um, a woman named Jill Jurgle. She was, she's a France specialist and a barge cruise specialist, which like, I didn't even know that was a thing. And uh, she, uh, I was her assistant and got my start helping her, you know, put together her itineraries, confirm hotels, make arrangements for um, her her clients traveling to France. And I started to look, like learn all of the hotels and got really excited looking up like room categories and Hotel Lutetia, for example, or, you know, writing, writing descriptions that were like evocative without giving too much away. Um, and I, that was, that was the first really insight into how people do this and how they make money out of it. Um, and then, you know, they really got me hooked when they're like, okay, Kirsten, do you want to go to Paris for, or France for like, you know, three weeks on your own, stay at Le Maurice, like eat up Plaza Athenee, like all of these, um, you know, really, really wonderful, um, like palace hotels. It, it, I felt like a girl in a movie. That's for sure. Um, that sounds amazing to just be, um, Amazing and terrifying, I guess I would say, maybe a little bit to be sent on your own to a country and then sort of be expected to be the authority, for lack of a better word, on what um, what there was to do and like how to shape the tour experience. I mean, was it a little bit anxiety inducing for you? Maybe not authority, but at least very competent, you know, and it's hard to be competent in something you've never done before. But so I was always a very theatrical child too. I really liked performing. I would write, um, you know, I was kind of obsessed with uh, musicals and I would 
like make my family listen to me perform Jesus Christ Superstar or Les Miserables. And, but I would, I would be like the main role and then, you know, the, the tape would come on and would like cover the other parts. So I think I've always liked that performative nature to, uh, or, or been drawn to being a performer in some way, but I have no real acting talent or singing talent. Um, but I did feel in some regard that being thrust into this kind of drew upon that skill set or at least that desire to uh, kind of not fake it till you make it necessarily, but uh, yeah, just act, okay, this is what is expected of me. I'm, I'm going to be myself, but I'm also going to embrace this, this character who knows what they're doing and who isn't surprised by this. Um, and I think sometimes that has come into play too as a guide. Uh, when I was working as a, you know, like a tour leader and guide, you, you kind of have to um, maybe fake calmness or fake, fake patience or whatever it is when you're dealing um, with, uh, with clients who are either underprepared or didn't read or, or having a rough day, um, you know, and always kind of draw on that like professionalism. Definitely. Um, in my different experiences in customer facing roles have felt a little bit like I was playing a character in, in a way and not, not in a bad way at all. Um, but mm -hmm. I can, I can definitely appreciate, um, that you, it kind of gives you, um, parameters in which to explore your creativity to, um, make people's experiences the best that they can be. Yeah. And I don't think it's, it's not a dis, I guess fake it till you make it as is incorrect. It's not a disingenuous way of acting. Um, it's just sort of a, what is the smoothest uh, means to an end in some way of like, what, what's going to be the most effective and helpful persona to adopt in, in this situation. So that was a, a, a skill that, yeah, I think maybe I had some of that and then this helped me develop and grow it more. Mm -hmm. Well, and if I'm being totally honest, when I've done, um, when I've done activities that have like a tour guide or someone kind of acting in that role in that capacity, like I'm not necessarily looking for them to sort of show warts and all exactly what you're saying. Like you're, I'm expecting someone who will make things run smoothly and be sort of the charming, um, you know, uh, facilitator for everything and sort of ease the way. So that, that mm -hmm. sounds exactly like what I, as a consumer have, um, come to expect in those situations. So was there, do you have like a particular role model that you tend to think of, um, or multiple role models when you, um, think about how your career has so far taken shape or who you want to emulate as you continue in this field? Yeah, I, I have a lot. Um, I think I've been really fortunate to saying yes to certain opportunities and and connecting with really good people and being sort of shepherded by them. Um, certainly Jill Jergle, who I started working with and under, uh, she kind of showed me the ropes of, of how to be a professional, how to talk to extremely high net worth individuals in like a, you know, a, a formal casual sort of way, like have a friendly uh, have friendly, but professional banter with them. Um, I, so I've, I've really, and I, we're still in touch to this day. Uh, and there are other women at that company too, that I really appreciated and value. Uh, Susie Gavlik is one that I still work with closely. Um, Kurt and Ann Katai, who were the, the founders and owners of Wildland Adventures. We have a tremendous friendship and I, 
I really respect kind of the the heart and soul that they've put into the travel industry. And they sold Wildland a year and a half ago and are doing other things now, but we maintain a, a very close friendship. And then uh, most recently, uh, Clark Catola, who I worked very closely with him for four years at his representation company. He's like, I don't want to use the term maverick, but kind of in the in the higher end travel industry. He he came into the industry through um he was a, a river guide in Peru and uh was has always been like super adventurous and he's this you know California guy, long hair, he kiteboards, he he doesn't really fit the role of a lot of these reps who are donning like very nice tailored suits and they live in New York and it's um you know they're they're hobnobbing at like fancy restaurants every night. Um, but he has just amazing clarity and perspective on, I think what the kind of authentic travel experiences that people are seeking. And so his collection is all these small local partners who don't have, they're not members in a larger global consortia. They're independent. They're not part of a big brand. Um, and so they have a lot of specialness to them. Um, and then also, uh, through that, I got to connect with some really, amazing visionaries in the sustainable tourism space. Um, one of them being Hans Pfister, who is the owner and founder of the Cayuga Collection. Um, they're a sustainable hospitality management company based in Costa Rica. They work with pro uh, a few select properties in Costa Rica, Panama, and Nicaragua. Um, and they have brought this concept of sustainable tourism um, as uh, an, economic, an economic benefit to really remote communities. Um, they opened and ran one of the first eco lodges on the Osa Peninsula, um, Lapa Rios Lodge, which was opened by former Peace Corps volunteers in 1993, um, and is really like the standard bearer for um, sustainable tourism in, in, the, um, in Central America, certainly, but even like is held to a very high global standard. Um, and he's opened, you know, hotels in Nicaragua when that was still an emerging destination. And his, one of his core values, which I have, you know, seen firsthand and really attached to is that you have to employ local and you have to employ a hundred percent local. It does nobody any good if, okay, if you say you employ locals and everybody is working in entry-level positions, like the general manager should not be imported. They should be from the community or the country that you're traveling to, to really give that authentic experience. And so Cayuga has this amazing training program where if you show the right, just, just the right characteristics and desire to learn, you can start working as a gardener in a hotel or construction with no English skills, and they will give you the tools and the resources and education you need to become manager, general manager, manager of operations. Um, and that has had a huge impact on how I think about travel and, and the kinds of partners and properties that I like to support globally um, and tell, tell clients about. So would you say there are any um, characteristics or traits that the people you tend to gravitate toward as role models that they have in common? Like it sounds, my impression is that a lot of them don't, as you said um, with Clark, don't kind of fit the stereotypical idea of who works in especially high-end travel. Um, but yeah, would you say that that you tend to gravitate toward a certain type of role model in the industry? Yeah. I mean, I think that's what one of the reasons I was attracted to the name we finally came up for our company, Outlier Journeys, is I, 
I have always felt drawn to the off the beaten path and, you know, go your own way method of, of doing, of being, um, and not following, following kind of a prescribed pathway. Um, and I think all of the individuals who I mentioned in, in some way, um, were sort of trailblazers and, and groundbreaking and in various, various different ways. But, um, certainly that's a, that's a characteristic, um, that would bind all of them. Now, thinking about kind of, um, like authentic off the beaten path experiences, I feel like if I'm being perfectly honest, that's become kind of a buzzword for a lot of travel, not only, um, travel based or focused organizations, but also consumers and, and clients Mm -hmm. themselves. Like everyone is looking for that quote unquote authentic experience. Mm -hmm. And I would imagine that some, (laughs) some organizations actually do offer authenticity and other ones offer comfort with kind of like, uh, the impression of authenticity. So how do you feel like you, you as a person in the industry, and then also maybe as a consumer or a client yourself, how do you differentiate between like, what is genuinely kind of off the beaten path, you know, authentic travel experience and what is just giving it that name? Yeah. Um, no, it's a really good question. It is something I think we all struggle with because a lot of these things that you correctly identified as buzzwords, let's throw like regenerative, transformational, all of that. It was, it's become so commonplace that you almost can't dissect like who's really doing what. Um, I think what I look for, and I'm, I'm going to use an example from Clark Cotola's portfolio, like, is it performative or is it a real place that you're getting to experience? And a great example of this is called Hacienda Zuleta in Ecuador, which I'm going to in a couple of weeks and I can't wait. It is centuries old. It's been in um, the, ga- the, the Lasso family for, um, for many, many years. It's the, the former home of two past presidents of Ecuador and they've worked and it's a working farm. Um, so they have multi tourism is just one small part of what they do. They have a huge dairy herd of cattle um, they produce a lot of different cheese on site. They have um, a condor rehabilitation and rescue program that's a breeding program that's owned and in, in collaboration with the local Zulateño community. They have uh, a workshop for women to teach embroidery. Um, the Zulateño women are really well known for this very fine embroidery they do. And they teach workshops to visitors. Um, and then they they sell their wares there as well. So they have all these little projects going on. And when you go and stay at Zuleta, you have a host who tells you about it, who takes you around the farm, but you're really just invited to live with them for a couple days, um, go out on horseback rides and like see the pre-Columbian burial mounds on the property, uh, you know, go with the biologist to the Condor Research Center. But I think, you know, it comes down to like, there's an aspect of like education to that and, and and it's not performative. It's not sanitized for our Western notion of what we consider like, you know, blanket statement, like what is luxury? What is, you know, it's not a gated resort that keeps you um, separate from the community uh, that you are invited to come and, and live among them. And okay, you might not be able to get the the type of wine that you want or, or whatever soft drink or, you know, they're not going to have caviar for you. And that 
you shouldn't. That's not of that place. Um, so that's sort of what I, I think of when I think of authentic experiences um, is has it been changed for a Western notion of comfort? Um, and that that's my that's probably like my biggest test. I'm not sure if I, I might be rambling and not answering the question now, but that's sort of what I use as as a test piece and gauge for what is authentic. And then I also personally look for local ownership um, and and operation or operation in conjunction with a local community. Um, you know, it takes a lot of money to to start tourism projects typically. So uh, that doesn't always come locally, but if the if the the effort is truly being made to have like a community aspect and and say and how an experience is happening and how it benefits the people who are acting as hosts to these guests coming in, um, to me that is that is authentic too. Um, yeah, that would be my answer. <laughs> okay, no, that's great. I think that's something that a lot of um, a lot of people find challenging. So I think it's really helpful mm-hmm. again, to get your perspective, not only as someone in the industry, but also someone who I, I think, um, kind of looks for those experiences personally as well. And, and it's obviously it's important to you. Um, so thank you. Um, so, I mean, again, like I know I kind of alluded to, I have this very like fantastic glamorized notion of what your day-to-day um and year-to-year life looks like professionally so want to kind of dig a little bit into what that looks like with a couple questions starting with um what have you found surprising about working in the field that didn't that you weren't expecting or that you hadn't even um thought about when you were you know 22 and getting your start with frontiers I guess one of the things that I've I've found maybe surprising is the this may not answer your question well, but the the breadth to which you can apply a degree in humanities and what you learn from having you know a bachelor of arts across any career. I, I think working in travel, there's a sales role, there's a psychological role to it and that you're helping people either experience the most joyful or sometimes really stressful moments, especially right now um, with all the regulations around travel and how to, how to be like a a sense of comfort and calm for them. Um, There's a lot of like history and and destination knowledge tied into it. It's um, a lot of communication. Are you, and I can't tell, my husband laughs at me because I always read my emails aloud to myself and he'll hear me like muttering in the basement. Um, but like, are you clearly communicating and rereading what you write and trying to step away from it yourself? So I think I'm always, and then there's the whole business side of things with accounting and trademarks and, uh, learning how to build your own website because you don't have capital to pay somebody else to do it yet (laughs) And, and things like that. So I guess I'm always surprised and kind of delighted by the, um, the number of different skills that it taps into. Um, it makes me wish that I would have taken like a business or accounting course before. I may, I may still opt to do that at some point. Um, but I think, you know, I know of really successful people in the industry who started as engineers who had other career paths before this. And I think, I think it's such a broad and interesting industry that it can really um, attract people from lots of different paths. Um, and 
and that's something that's that's really wonderful about it because all of those people bring their own perspectives and skills to um, to it and make it better. It's really great news to hear for the rest of us who <laughs> have always dreamed of going into this as a profession, but have thought, you know, maybe I um, am not cut out for it. And it sounds like um, the option is there for folks who might not have originally um, pictured themselves doing this kind of work. So. Yeah. So I'm going to, can I give a plug really quick for something cool that um, your listeners might be interested in? Um, So there's a a woman in New York, Henley, who I'm, I'm friends with. She's founder of Passported, which was a, um, a travel agency that was more, a little bit more family focused. And she recently founded a, a company called Fora and it's their tag is they're the return of the travel advisor. And what they are trying to do is really empower female home-based travel entrepreneurs to turn this passion into a way to make money. Um, So they're offering all of the training, all of the kind of, uh, you know, a really slick tech deck and all of the the fancy tools that you need to make yourself stand out. So if there are folks listening who love to travel and always plan it and kind of dream of doing this and wonder how to turn this career, this passion into a career, um, check out Fora, F-O-R-A. They're a they're a, a good, good place to get started. I hope my mom is listening. I feel like she would be <laughs> a perfect candidate for this. Um, great. Thank you. Yeah, that'll be really helpful. Um, so then we've talked a little bit about surprises. What then are some of the misconceptions that you tend to find other people hold about your work or just work in general in, in kind of the travel high-end travel industry? Yeah, it's, I mean, there's definitely been those glam, certain glamorous moments like we talked about. Um, and, but a lot of it, you know, like any, like any job, there are parts of it that, that aren't as fun and aren't as pleasant. I know there's horror stories right now from advisors and folks who, you know, you're on the phone with the airlines for 12 hours trying to get a hold of someone, um, to solve a problem that, you know, you really have no control over. You know, we just saw it like in the news with all of the flights canceled over the holidays due to weather and due to staffing issues with COVID. Um, I think, you know, the the COVID wreaked havoc on so many industries. Um, The travel industry was particularly hard hit. Um, And I think the, the job has become more challenging now because first of all, when you're planning global travel, I mean, you only have so much control. You really, you only have control over like what you're telling a client and trying to set their expectations. Nobody can control the world. So that um, there is sort of this element of you're kind of going into it like, well, I hope this works um, no matter, (laughs) no matter what you do. But now, you know, even that semblance of like, I can control something has been completely ripped away. So I think the, the, uh, you really have to have an understanding for like, how much time you maybe spend undoing or correcting or redoing things at this moment. And that all takes time that you're not really getting paid for. Um, And so a lot of folks that I know have had to kind of reconfigure how they market themselves, what they charge. You know, people are charging hourly fees now to maybe like wait on the phone with the airlines. Um, The other misconception I'd say that I have sometimes is like 
from would be travelers are like, why would I work with you? You'd be so expensive compared to, you know, I could just find this myself online and book it and like, okay, that's well and good. You probably won't find exactly what I would tell you online. And, you know, that would not be on Expedia or whatnot. Um, but the travel industry primarily gets paid on the back end through commissions and through um, net contract rates with different partners. So it's not like you're taking a market rate and then slapping a thousand dollars on top of it and giving it to a client um, by and large. That's that's not true. So that's that's a I'd say a pain or friction point that I get met with when I'm talking to like friends or family about what I do. And they're like, oh, well, you'd be too expensive. It's like, well, that's that's not necessarily true. Came to me while you were saying that. I kind of feel like, um, so you know how like doctors are not a big fan of when patients come in and they've Googled something on WebMD and self-diagnosed? Yes. <laughs> I kind of feel like this is like the travel industry version where someone says, well, I have kayak and I have this and that, so I can do your job just as well when that's actually not the case because yes, they can get access to like basic information, but they don't have the expertise and like the years of training and understanding that you have gathered and have to put at their disposal. I mean, it's not only that, it's like having a human relationship with someone who is, you know, has a, a hand in creating maybe some of the best moments of your life. And then when shit hits the fan, like it did in 2020, do you have a person to turn to who can at least advocate for you and help you and maybe talk you off the ledge and take that off your plate versus, you know, I mean, my dad's a perfect example. He booked a, a trip on Rocky Mountaineer and arranged all of his stuff in Canada and was booking on like TripAdvisor and Expedia to get the cheapest rates. And he lost all of his money, uh, not with a train. He, he, um, he was able to get that back, but and had to spend hours of going through just like, you know, automated loopholes. Um, and I think he came away from that realizing like the value of having someone else do this for you. Um, it's great when it works, but it doesn't always, and especially not now. And those human connections that you're talking about also, I would imagine, give you a little bit more leeway in some situations, not even just COVID pandemic related, but you know, in the past when people have had a death in the family while they're traveling or when an airline has suddenly gone bust in the middle of your trip, um, having someone who has those human relationships, you can probably, you know, just in a situation where talking to a stranger, they'll say, well, there's nothing I can really do. If they know you, um, then, you know, that is sort of how human nature works. We have more accountability and maybe some more flexibility when we're working with a known entity. Yeah, that's absolutely true. Um, I think especially with, yeah, like you said, a death in the family, something comes up, people suddenly can't travel, you know, you're within a cancellation penalty. If you have a really good relationship with, with a lodge, um, with the owners and, you know, a, a proven track record of, of business that they're working with, they will probably try to make it work for my clients, for example. Maybe that's in the form of a credit that I can use for future booking and then refund those clients. Um, you know, not always, there's always, but but there's a, there's a much better chance of that happening if you're working with an advisor or a travel company that has these, you know, these close personal relationships with the places that they're sending you. Are you on Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter? My Dilettante Life is, 
Follow us on your favorite social media sites to get announcements, behind-the-scenes info, and photos of cute dogs. Who doesn't like dog photos? You can find the podcast on Twitter with the handle at DilettanteLife and on Instagram under at my underscore dilettante underscore life underscore podcast. And as always, if you like the show, please spread the word. So what do you wish that, beyond what we've already discussed, what do you wish that people knew about your job, whether it's from a client perspective or even just like friends talking to you about what they think your job looks like? I think like a lot of jobs, there's an incredible amount of time management to be effective. Um, There's, if you are a a company owner in the travel industry, or you are an advisor, an independent contractor who's affiliated with someone, you're kind of a one or two person business. And so you're, you're doing everything. Um, And this is no surprise to any small business owner that like, okay, you have so much to do that you're not an expert in that you're constantly learning. Um, but yeah, it's just, it's not all fly fishing in Slovenia and, you know, yachting in Alaska. Um, and a lot of times those trips, okay. So here's the thing. My husband, uh, always wants to travel with me on my work trips. And I'm like, Ramey, you don't want to, like, you're going to be annoyed that you used vacation days for this because I'm going from one night, one night, one night, one night to, you know, from place to place, driving crazy distances and to, to check in on everyone I work with. And people would normally spend like, you know, four or five nights at these, these places. It's like really fast paced. It's tiring. You know, you're up early, you're doing all of the things to, to get that experience and connect with everyone. Um, so it's not, I mean, everyone in the end, it's not a vacation most of the time. Um, even this, this trip that I have coming up to Ecuador is awesome. I'm really excited. We're going to be in the Galapagos with the Integrity, for, which is um, a 16-passenger yacht in the Galapagos for, for seven days for the whole length of a, of a cruise. And that is super exciting for me. But on the front and back of that, of that, I'm doing like one night, two nights at various different places in Ecuador just to make sure I get that firsthand experience and reconnect with everyone. Um, so purposefully... Ramey's only joining me in the Galapagos on the boat. And then for the, the four nights afterwards, um, because otherwise it's like, you're, you're going to hate this. It's work. Well, and it sounds like it's work basically for every waking hour. Like it's not even just a nine to five, not only the crazy driving that you were talking about, but I would imagine like people have the expectation that they should be able to reach you for anything anytime you are awake. <laughs> yeah. You're, and when you're handling clients also simultaneously, um, yeah, you have that you are usually, you know, depending on where they're traveling, they have an in-country contact, which is their emergency contact that can handle them first, but you're getting that phone call at three o'clock in the morning. And if you are awake and, um, coherent, you, you want to take it just to, like I said, even if you can't do anything, just listening to someone so often is is all that they need in that moment and having the presence to to act and kind of like that psychological sort of way just act as their their therapist in that moment and listen and then you know do do what you can and make sure they feel that they have you know choice in the matter of whatever is going wrong um but no it is it is a lot of work any you know, this is the space I live in. So I'm constantly hearing this from other travel advisors. It's like, nobody knows how much work this is on these trips. Um, and then you're also, you're doing all of your own marketing, all of your own content creation. So there's, 
there's just a lot that goes into it, but you know, it can feel like a burden or it can feel like an opportunity to constantly be learning and refining skills and sort of developing your own style versus um, doing what everybody else is doing. Now I have to ask, um, how often do you get asked by friends or family to do your professional work for them for free? Fairly often. And it's, it's something I'm trying to, I don't know if I have the perfect answer yet because I am, I am a little bit of like a a natural helper and people pleaser. I like, I like to help people. I want to make sure that even if they're not booking their trip through me, that they're not doing you know, something dumb that they're going <laughs> to, they're going to hate. Um, and you know, I just had an experience with a, a friend from college who called me about a family trip. They're going on to Costa Rica and I ended up, you know, spending an hour and a half on the phone with her kind of going through these things that she booked on her own. Um, which is fine. Like it, she came to me after the fact and just knew I had experience. I th- so I think it's part of like, I need to do a better job of explaining to people what I do and then come up with some sort of approachable, but fair fee that if people have booked their own things and they still want my guidance, um, you know, to charge that for like maybe a 90 or a 60 minute consultation, I just, uh, it's hard, you know, it's hard to, and then uh, of course it's also hard because I want my friends to feel like if I'm taking their money, they're getting value for, for what I'm delivering. And that is somewhat intangible sometimes when it comes to this kind of exchange. Um, like, do they find what I'm telling them? valuable or did they think eventually they would have found that information themselves on the website? I think the, you know, one of the biggest assets that I have right now is just like all of this firsthand knowledge of how these rules and regulations are planning out and seeing trends and how they are changing or likely to change as we continue to muddle our way through this pandemic and then helping people have sort of like a contingency plan to set them up for success if A, B, or C happens. And I know for my friend who I spoke with, she was not considering that yet. Um, Like what would happen if one of their children tests positive and they, they have to quarantine. So that, um, so I think, you know, she found value in just being given that perspective of having a, having a plan B. So you're saying you could add um, like crisis management to your (laughs) very tangible list of skills. Yeah, I guess that's, um, maybe I should, maybe I should put that on the resume. I mean, everybody should, if they've worked in travel for the past, honestly, everyone on this planet gets crisis management as a, as a life skill now for especially parents, especially teachers and healthcare workers for, um, getting, getting here this far. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So I know we've talked a little bit about some of the, um, yeah, maybe some of the, I don't want to say frustrations, but some of the challenges that people might not be aware of, um, some of the surprising things. What would you say um, is or are the coolest parts of your job? It's really beautiful to connect with other people in the travel industry, whether they be like employees at a lodge or owners of like a boutique outfitter in another country. And they can sort of like drop the farce of trying to impress and accommodate. And you can just have really cool conversations about maybe cultural misconceptions or things that they're constantly dealing with or like what they knew travelers knew uh, before coming to them. And then you can have that opportunity to sort of act as an educator um, and and maybe give 
give travelers a, a new perspective or reasons for choosing a certain property or for thinking a certain way. Um, you know, there's the climate crisis is huge and looming and it's no, well, not looming, we're in it. It's no secret that, you know, flying around the world for leisure is um, a huge contributor to carbon. And it's something that only only really members of wealth, people who reside in wealthy nations have the luxury to do. So helping travelers think about, you know, educating them on what are some better options for the way that they're pursuing their travel that can have a positive impact on the host and, you know, the community they're visiting and also be as sustainable and environmentally responsible as possible. Maybe it's, um, you know, Europe just banned a lot of these short haul flights, which you may have seen, um, you know, encouraging people to take a train. Maybe they've come to me with an idea about a certain property or lodge they heard about in a magazine and they want to, they want to stay there. And if I have the firsthand experience or knowledge, I might be able to say, okay, you can, you know, maybe it's one that's, that's part of one of these global chains. And not that, not that those are, there's a lot of good that those organizations do too. And they employ so many people and maybe it's giving them that perspective of why don't we also include this? Because if you go here, you're going to learn this about the culture that you're experiencing. You're going to connect with, you know, this indigenous, um, you know, do, do a day with an indigenous led tourism organization. Who's going to take you on an ethnobotany walk. Um, you're going to learn about this, this marginalized part of the culture and you're going to contribute to their well-being through your tourism dollars and then also do the thing that you want to do. So I think, uh, an advisor has, or anyone in the travel trade has a lot of, um, ability to, help shift clients perspective and kind of broaden their horizons and what they think they want and what they get to experience on their trips, you know, how they vote, vote with their dollars for the type of the type of travel they're doing. Um, but it does require a lot of education. And that's one thing I hope to see the industry do more of um, is not just sort of, we call it greenwashing where everyone's like, Oh, I'm sustainable. I'm not, you know, I got rid of plastic and I'm using my towels twice. It's like, what are, like the measurable, impactful things that organizations are doing um, that we can share with clients and help help them change their minds. That sounds really, yeah, um, meaningful. And I will also say, it sounds like you haven't totally abandoned your cultural anthropology roots because <laughs> I definitely feel like that was kind of a common thread uh, among a lot of what you, what you were talking about. So um, is there... Any, I mean, I guess we talked a little bit about the folks who kind of say that they could do your job for lack of a, of a better phrase, um, or, you know, wonder sort of what you, what value you bring. So uh, tell me what are the biggest differences that you see between pursuing this as a hobby? And I definitely put that in quotes and doing mm -hmm. this professionally. Air quotes. Um, <laughs> yeah, I, I think so the, if you are contacting a true travel professional, I think the, the biggest differentiator, and this is even within the industry of people who are travel advisors, is, is knowledge and firsthand experience and sort of being able to give, not sort of 
giving the client that perspective from a position of knowledge and experience versus fulfilling an order. Um, that's what I see my role as is, is sort of counseling people and giving them those options through my own knowledge and research and time spent on the ground gathering these things. And, and as I, I repeated earlier, um, broadening their horizon and giving them a trip that's not only going to be better for them, but also have a, a greater positive impact on either, you know, a conservation focus or uh, bring in some of those community-based tourism elements that we were discussing. Um, I, there's so many layers to what you book online. Um, a lot of these booking platforms do not, they're, they're not transparent about like, who is the company that's running this tour. Um, and it's not always apparent if it's going to be you know, a private experience, if you're going to be like on a bus with 15 other people. Uh, so I think if, if you are doing it as a hobby, you're relying a lot on Google reviews and things you're finding online and just sort of like this crowdsourced information, which crowdsourcing can be a great thing, but there's, there's a lot of fake reviews out there and you don't, you don't know that I mean, you don't know what you, you don't know until you go in a lot of ways. Um, it's, and I think for, for folks who have a really specific vision of what they want to get out of a trip, um, they have, they have the money to have somebody else plan it for them. They lack the time to do this like deep dive into research themselves. Um, that that's where our role is, is really valuable. I do for, to give an illustration, uh, I have a client that came to me recently. He wanted to charter a boat in the Galapagos for 16 people. And he was really, really wanted to, to do this, um, to do a sailboat. Now on a sailboat, if you know those versus other boats in the Galapagos, like the cabins are really tiny. And if you don't have a bunch of diehard sailors, that's going to be a much tougher sell um, for a group of friends and, and his adult children and their partners, um, then, then maybe doing something a little bit more comfortable. Now he, he's a sailor, so he was really okay with that, but it took some conversations back and forth and like showing him the cabin room sizes and just trying to get him to think about if you want this experience to be about your extended family and friends and you want everyone to enjoy it, like you might need to let go of that notion. And if, if you do, if you're willing to shift it this way, I bet you'll have a lot more people, a lot more takers on board than sort of like what you wanted to do at first. And, and here are the reasons. And, and eventually he did choose a, a different boat, a, a small yacht for family and friends where everyone has a nice window, not just like a little porthole and the, the cabins are more spacious and just sort of the things that if you're not, um, if you're not a sailboat person, um, you value if you're spending a week on a boat. So uh, that that's kind of one example where if left to his own devices, he probably would have booked something sight on scene and he would have had some uh, unhappy, unhappy fellow travelers. So. Yeah, I can definitely imagine a lot of it is about um, managing expectations, but you were talking about um, earlier you know, when you're working with friends or family, not necessarily, you know, feeling like you want to make any 
any paid time that you offer them worth their while. And I can definitely see how some of it, something like that, it's harder to quantify. If you have someone who has, let's say, accessibility limitations, and you are able to direct them to tried and true providers who are, you know, able to give them a really wonderful experience that isn't, um, you know, sort of um, lessened by any mobility or accessibility issues. That's like a Mm -hmm. quantifiable thing, I feel like. But the conversation you were just talking about that, um, that's a great example, but it might be um, harder for people in the back of their mind to think about that in sort of concrete terms. So I really like that. I think sometimes too, when you're, when you're doing research online, you might be getting attached to like the one shiny thing or best thing. Um, one of my roles I always feel is to give people options. So they are making the choice for themselves within, you know, what I know to be, to be good, good quality, maybe at different price points. Like here's, and, you know, responsible operators, like, here's what you get at this, here's what you get at this and kind of giving those to them and, and then letting them decide. I think that that can be a harder thing to figure out when you're doing your own research online and seeing all these different reviews and, oh, and lo- and logistics. People have no idea. Google map is a farce. Like, do not believe it. Just because something says like, oh, I can drive between here and here in five hours. Like those roads have potholes. It's the rainy season. That's going to take you 10 hours. Like there's, there's all of that logistical knowledge too, that doesn't translate to what Google maps says you can do. Um, so that is a big thing that I'm constantly debunking for folks who may have done their own research and then come to me and asked. And when I'm like, you don't want to do that, they're like, well, Google says I can. Um, we actually just had our own experience <laughs> with that. Um, a few months ago, we were in Bosnia and mm. we're driving between two locations Went the way that Google Maps said would be the shortest. We didn't um, drive onto any mines, but we were definitely at one point between a couple of minefields and it was a road that had seen pavement probably either never or like many years before. So it was, it was an exciting experience to have survived, but it probably would have been nice to know beforehand, um, that Google was leading us a little bit astray. So I can appreciate that. Yeah, I mean, there is limitations to what technology and online opinions can give you. And I think, yeah, the knowledge of what real life logistics are and how weather and time of year and all of these things factor into them is a a big um, asset to working with someone knowledgeable. So now that you are getting ready to launch your own company, which is super exciting, what would you kind of looking back on um, the path that's taken you to this point, what would you tell your younger self about what it's been like to, to sort of realize this career for yourself? So I guess my one, it's interesting because I, I don't have any regrets with the career path I've, I've taken. And I I think every step along the way has been a huge education has been really interesting. Um, I so value that I've been able to see so many different sides and like types of travel and meet all of these, you know, incredible thinkers and visionaries. Um, there are parts of me that I'm like, well, I wish I would have started this sooner. Probably when I, when I first left wildland, I, I would have had the skills I needed to like launch my own thing, but I didn't have the drive at that time. And so, you know, everything aligns at the right place when it should. Um, I think 
a, a friend that I really admire who has a really strong entrepreneurial drive and she has her own interior design business in Tahoe. She's, she's always, you know, giving business advice, which is like, just start, just start. It's going to be messy. You're going to learn. You're going to make some mistakes. And, and that I've had in the back of my head, because I would say for me, I probably don't have that strong entrepreneurial drive. I mean, like, I was like the kid playing with stuffed animals saying I want to be a zookeeper. So it wasn't like I was, I was a CEO on career day or anything. Um, I, so nurturing that part of myself has been really important and finding um, specific uh, support groups to help me with, uh, with different angles of kind of stepping into this entrepreneurial role have been really valuable um, there's some great ones in the travel industry for first timers. Um, one is called masters in travel. It's, it's run by a seasoned advisor named Whitney. Um, they have a Instagram that, that's really good advice for if you're becoming a new travel advisor for me, uh, I'm doing it. It starts at the end of February. A friend of mine, Iris, um, is, is launching, it's called women's work and it's a, it's a accelerator for um, first-time female entrepreneurs. So I'm really excited to take that class. So I think like if you are interested in doing this, be very honest about your skill set. Look at look at what you need help with and then find support groups who can either help you grow those skills personally or kind of teach you how to identify, okay, where can I offload this? How can I hire effective help for these different things that I can't do myself? That because it feels really overwhelming to jump into something new all at once. But if you break it down into little pieces, I think it, it is, it's more manageable. Um, and then if somebody wants to get into the travel trade, you know, there's, like I said, there's a lot of different layers you can go into. You could go into the hospitality side of things and work in hotels. You could um, do the tour operator route and maybe focus on like adventure. You could be a travel advisor and work as an affiliate. And if that's the path you want to take, definitely becoming an affiliate of a larger agency that has an in-house training program and can kind of show you the ropes while you build your client base and kind of define your own style is, is really valuable. Would you say that you see yourself as an expert in your field? Yeah, I do think I, I possess expertise earned over the years in, in how the travel industry works overall how to effectively service clients and then and certainly an expert in destinations that I know well and have been traveling to and selling for years. Um, as an expert, it doesn't mean that there's nothing else to learn. There's constantly, constantly things to learn. And, you know, I learn from my peers. I learn from my clients. I learn from, um, I learn from you. I learn from people outside the industry, I think is a really great way to get insight into how maybe you could run your business better. Like I was talking about my, my friend who, um, runs the interior design firm in Tahoe, like her, she comes from uh, a tech background and having never been in that field, I gain a lot of insight from folks who work in that field and kind of were, were brought up in the workforce with one mindset that I'm like, okay, I could apply this to what I'm doing and be more efficient or, <laughs> um, you know, be just, you know, address certain friction points better for the client. So are there particular experiences or people who you feel have helped you see yourself as an expert? Yeah, definitely. Um, the, 
so I have my dearest clients, my favorite clients in the whole world. Uh, Elise and Sharon, I'm giving you a, a shout out here. Um, part of part of being, I think, an effective designer, planner of travel, and when you're working with clients over and over and over again, is you can be a destination expert, but you also need to be an expert in your clients. Like, what do they like? And almost have like an intuitive knowledge of just, just trust me on this. Like you're thinking you don't want this, but this is what you're going to want. And I, I've planned trips for them. They're just so fabulous. They love photography. They love wildlife. Um, they've been over to Alaska with me, Norway, Brazil, Patagonia, Peru. They've done Colombia, a lot of really cool trips. And, um, I think they'd come to me for anything in Europe or Latin America. Um, and they've, their trust in me and their appreciation for, as they've said, like the richness I've brought to their life through travel experiences really makes me feel like, okay, I, I know my stuff and it's had, it's had a positive impact on these travelers. And then they've been to some really amazing projects and they've supported incredible conservation initiatives with where they've traveled and how they've spent their money. So that makes me feel like an expert. And I have a, I don't wake up every day thinking like, oh, I got this. I'm an expert. I know what I'm doing. I, I often wake up like pretty confused being like, oh, I have to figure this out. Um, but when we sent the email from Clarkatola representation to um, saying that I was leaving and I was starting my own thing, I think like the well wishes that I got from so many people in our industry who I had helped, they were, they were advisors and I had, I had helped them understand kind of how to work with our properties more effectively, um, that appreciation kind of reminded me, okay, I know what I'm doing. I think, yeah, I, I, I don't know if this is common, but I, do you see, like, how do you decide if you're an expert? Is it how other people view you? Is it, is it like a reflection thing? Because I, I don't think I wake up in the mirror thinking, uh, look in the mirror in the morning and, and say like, I am an expert. I think that only dawns on me when other people have assigned that title to me. I mean, it's it's an interesting question, um, and one I think each person has their own take on. I I will say, I think there is maybe somewhat of a gendered trend where I think women we tend to kind of seek out the external validation for better or for worse. Like I think it definitely brings something of value to get. Um, confirmation from your peers who you respect and you perceive them as knowing things or potentially being experts in your field to hear from them that they perceive you as such, I think is, is good. It's, it's confirmation that what you're doing is going in the right direction. Um, mm -hmm. So, yeah, I, I mean, I see you as an expert. <laughs> I don't know if that, if that affects you how you see yourself at all, but um, yeah, I definitely think there's more, I, I sense more hesitation, I think with, women, um, in general, not to say that that's the case for, for everyone. Um, mm -hmm. but to, yeah, there's more hesitation to say, to see yourself as an expert. Yeah. And I think I do feel like in going out on my own and starting outlier journeys was like a big step into my own power and saying like, I can do this. I know what I'm doing. I've been doing it for other people and other companies successfully for years. It's time to do it for myself. Um, I think that was a validation of, of my expertise. Um, 
but yeah, no, it's an interesting thing to unpack and think about more. Like what other aspects of life and society? That, that's a loaded question, Hannah. <laughs> Sorry, I should have warned you before I, I asked you. I need to talk about this in therapy now. So. <laughs> I love it. I love it. Um, okay. So going in a completely different direction, if you weren't working in high-end travel, what would you be doing? Oh, I loved this question and I have your exact answer. So last year, 2020, my last name is Gardner and I don't know, I love plants. I love growing things. Um, maybe my people long, long ago were like, you know, hunt, they were some of the first farmers. I have no idea. But uh, during 2020, I used some of the downtime to complete my uh, permaculture certificate from the University of Oregon. And I am obsessed with regenerative plant systems, um, how we can use the system, how we can harness and learn from the systems that already exist in nature to improve soil fertility, to improve yields, and how we can you know, turn very small acreage without cutting down everything around it into a productive food system. And so I got my permaculture design, design certificate. Um, if I was not doing travel, I would love to be a permaculture designer and have my own small design firm, helping people turn their lawns and their yards into productive, thriving food systems, not only for themselves, but to benefit the natural world. There is a woman in based out of Oakland, California, who runs Pine House Edible, Pine House Edible Gardens, I think. And she is like my crush superhero in, in this in this world. Everything she does is beautiful and and sustainable and really enhances like the life of the people who employ her and then the ecosystem that they create in their yard. I love this question because I feel like it gives me a like a deeper glimpse into who you are as a person to hear about like your secondary passion. I will also say at some point uh, this year, I will be having an episode um, interviewing someone who does farming. So not specifically Ooh. permaculture, um, but at least one or two guests um, that I will be talking to about their work in farming. Um, so just a plug if you want to tune in for that personally, um, as well as any of the listeners, but I think that's really awesome. And it definitely, I feel like ties in as well to, um, some of what you've talked about with the, the focus on sustainability and, um, really incorporating like indigenous communities into a responsible stewardship with the travel industry. So I feel like that just fits with, with everything that I know about you already. And I love it. (laughs) Thanks. There are some really amazing properties and experiences you can have around the world on, you know, staying in places that are practicing um, regenerative and um, permaculture practices. And that's kind of built into the experience. And that's part of the amazing education you get to have when you when you engage like that. Wonderful. So last question is, what do you want to be asked about your job that I haven't yet asked you? You know, a question that comes up is like, when, when should I use you or when, when would a client, you know, when, when is the right fit to like work with a professional? Um, at those, you know, those special trips to places where maybe it's a, it's a dream destination and you want to make sure you get it right. Um, 
is definitely a time to, to reach out and like contact someone who has, who has more knowledge. Um, I would also say like price point wise, it, uh, it can be, it can be surprisingly affordable, um, to have really incredible experiences. If you reach out to someone like me who could maybe steer you towards a, a time of year, well, you'll, you'll get better rates or, you know, knowing of certain like combination deals or length of stay that give you complimentary nights, those sort of things. Um, again, talking about that misconception that like, if I use you, I'm going to pay more. And it's, it's more like how, how can I have, add value? Um, and I think that knowledgeability about a destination and really knowing like, you know, here's your trade-offs. You might travel during this time of year where you get more rain showers in the afternoon, but you're going to have incredible value. Um, you know, you're going to be paying less. You will have less tourists. Uh, also kind of vying around like the same wildlife experience. So, so things like that. I think working with an expert, you can really get insight to a place that might, that might surprise you. I've, I've convinced so many people to travel during like the low season to different destinations and they all come back being like, that was amazing. I thought it was going to rain the entire time based on what I looked up online or what I saw on the, you know, the weather app. And we had occasional showers. Like that was great. There were no tourists and like the hotel rates were 30% off of what they normally would have been. So. Oh, wonderful. Thank you so much, Kirsten. This was really delightful to talk with you about your professional history so far, get a little bit of insight into your day-to-day -day life and um, also to hear about, you know, the, the effects of the pandemic and some of the other kind of broader trends in the travel industry um, was mm -hmm. really insightful. So thank you so much for your time. When I grow up, I want to be a jazz singer. I hope you enjoyed listening to this episode of My Dilettante Life. I'm your host, Hannah Binder. The podcast theme music was composed by Anna Bradley, with sound editing assistance from Yuli Anerson. The podcast logo was designed by Ashley Burke, with help from model Ivy Bean. Thanks to our guests, and to all our listeners for tuning in. If you have follow-up questions for a guest, send them in for a chance to be featured on an upcoming Audience Asks segment. My Dilettante Life is available wherever you get your podcasts, as well as directly at hannabinder.com slash mydilettantelife. That's H-A-N-A-B-I-N-D-E-R dot com slash my dash dilettante dash life. Tschüss!